Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on? Not so much, Steve. Uh, looking forward to recording this special bonus episode with you. All right. And you're right. That's what we've got today is a special bonus episode. You might notice that it is not released on our normal Wednesday schedule. And we decided to try something a little bit different, a little bit experimental, where we took some questions that we'd been getting from our growth EQ community, and we're going to try and give you an inside look on a topic that holds near and dear to our heart, something that allows us to uh, bring these conversations and information to you. So let's dive into it. And that topic is book writing. And more broadly, how we got into book writing, how we got our book deal that then became plural deals, how we decided to work together, um, and where we're going next. You know, publishing in general is a pretty opaque industry. So um, we want to try to provide some visibility into publishing um, for y'all. That seems like a topic that a lot of you guys are just super interested in. As one diehard Growth EQ fan said, you know, I love it when you guys tell me about performance and well-being because that helps me. But I really enjoyed when you guys had Kill Newport on and you spent like 10 minutes geeking out inside baseball on publishing. Why don't you guys just do a whole episode on that? So here we are. This one's for you, Mark. All right. So where should we begin? Well, I think a good place to begin for me is how I got into writing. And this is before I met you. And then maybe you do the same and we can lead that into like when we met and and then from when we met to getting our first book deal. All right, let's do it. All right. So the long and short of the story is I've always loved writing, but I was never good enough to write when I was young. So I got like cut from the high school newspaper. I applied to really good journalism school, didn't get in. So then as a high schooler going into college, you just think to yourself, I guess writing's not for me. Uh, so I studied stuff that wasn't writing, economics, policy, psychology, like an interdisciplinary social science program. Um, got a job at McKinsey, went to public health school and yada, yada, yada. During that whole time, I was constantly doing nonfiction writing, even though it wasn't nonfiction writing. So I was always known, whether it was at school or then later at work, as the person that did the PowerPoint slides or told the story or wrote the white paper. I was never into like the financial modeling in Excel. So I was always storytelling. Uh, I just wasn't doing it in a way that most people would recognize as formal writing. So after public health school, I took a job at a large healthcare system on the West Coast, and I was doing a lot of physician leadership development and coaching young physicians. And um, at that time, the healthcare system I was working in was doing a very large project on what is called advanced care planning, which is basically trying to get ahead of death and dying to make a plan in advance so that you don't have situations where someone is unconscious and the family members are arguing about what to do, or someone might start becoming delusional or delirious and they say, keep me alive. But earlier they said, actually, I wouldn't want to be alive in this condition or vice versa. Um, to um, our diehard Republican listeners, this was known as death panels. To everyone else, this is known as good empowering healthcare. 
So anyways, around this time, my grandma back home in Michigan was in the process of dying of lung cancer. And the healthcare system she was in had none of this advanced care planning. And um, it hit very close to home because I saw my mom and my aunt kind of butt heads about what to do with my grandma as she lost the capacity to make decisions for herself. And that was a really, really hard time. So I saw the work that we were doing in our approach versus the approach that happened with my grandma in being totally naive to how any of this stuff works. Um, I wrote an op-ed and I sent it to the New York times, the wall street journal and the Los Angeles times. Uh, I think it was called like the conversation that no one wants to have, but needs to have. And that conversation is about death and dying and the kind of care you'd want. And sure enough, the Los Angeles times, uh, they published it. They published it on a Sunday. The piece was extremely well read and commented on and, um, total luck, right? Like who knows why that editor chose a piece from me for all we know, like it hit close to home. Maybe she had an experience with recent experience with death and her family, no idea what it was, but they ran the story story did well. And then next thing you know, Huffington post is like, Hey, that was a great story. Do you want to blog on our health vertical? Um, now I would never write for free for Huffington post. Then I'm like, Oh hell yeah. I'll write for Huffington post. Like no one's ever wanted to see my writing. So I started writing for Huffington Post, and very quickly they realized that I wasn't really interested in writing about healthcare policy, but I was interested in writing about what I would call performance and well-being, uh, success, the kinds of things that we talk about in the Growth EQ. So I started writing about that stuff on the blog, and then eventually some magazines saw the blog and said, hey, this kid's a pretty good writer. Maybe he could write for our magazine. And I just continued to pitch, and one thing led to another in the next, and the next, and the next. And eventually, um, through connections, luck, and a little bit of skill, I got offered um, a chance to write for Outside Magazine. I worked my ass off to try to write the best piece I could. That story did well. Like, hey, that one did well. Let me write another one. Let me write another one. And about the 10th one, they finally said, hey, do you want to be a regular contributor? And then they offered me a column. And um, For that column, I was doing a story on interesting approaches to coaching, and I had long read Steve's blog, The Science of Running, so I reached out to Steve uh, to do an interview with him, and we hit it off on the phone, and um, that is how our relationship started. So I'm going to pause there. So that's my pre-Steve history of writing. Oh, man. Before Steve. BS time. Um, So... My journey is kind of similar in some ways, but differs in some key key ways as well. Um, similar to Brad is I did not write very well initially. You can still argue if I write well now, but no, I'm just kidding, hopefully. Um, but I started my writing. I had no interest in reading. I had no interest in writing through school through high school, through college, I kind of despised all of it um, until I got towards the end of undergrad and into grad school. And I started going down this path of learning as much as I could about, you know, the physiology of running and endurance, essentially. And because of what I was learning, I decided to essentially expand my blog or start my blog at some point which just kind of tracked the things that I was interested in and was learning about in school and beyond on 
exercise science and coaching and physiology. And I initially just would write stuff on that blog that, you know, had very little thought behind it and would kind of rant on different subjects uh, that I'd, you know, be learning about. And lo and behold, some of them would take off. And all of a sudden I realized, well, this is strange. People are reading things that I am writing, you know, that wasn't an expectation. I didn't set out to write this grand, you know, running site. It just kind of grew and grew and grew. And out of that, I had some really cool opportunities to first start doing some writing for Runner's World and Competitor. And then for a while, um, I was a columnist for Running Times magazine, which was essentially kind of Runner's World for the serious runner, I would call it. Uh, more in depth on training and stuff like that. And I wrote a regular column for their monthly magazine. I still didn't see myself too much as a writer. I saw myself as a coach who used writing to communicate. But from there, what happened is, well, during grad school, my initial thesis was for periodization for distance runners or endurance athletes. So I'd written up about, gosh, 100, 150 pages, somewhere in that realm of review for that thesis. Well, then my final year, my thesis advisor got a different job, moved to universities, and I had a new advisor who had no idea, you know, what was going on with periodization models. And I was in the process of getting offered uh, or interviewing for the job I eventually took at Nike. So I needed to graduate. So in the last, I think, six months of, or last couple months, honestly, of my master's degree, I switched my thesis to um, something that I could quickly do, which ended up being prevention of stress fractures and runners. Don't run too much and eat food. <laughs> As I said, it was something I could I could crank out really quickly. I got that done, but in in turn I had this 100 uh, again, like 125, 150 pages of in-depth science that just sat and it was fully written that just sat on my computer. And it sat there on my computer for 2 years through my experience at the Oregon project until at some point I said, "You know what?" I should do something with this. And at first, I went the route of talking to a couple agents, talking to one or two publishers, and said, you know, I'm going to create this book that combines the in-depth, hardcore science of running plus coaching the high end of it, the high level of coaching. So not you know, how to run your first 5K. No offense to those who who write and talk about that. Uh, But I wanted the book that, you know, I didn't see out there on the market at the time, which was go as deep as you can to explain everything around the performance of of running faster. And, you know, the feedback... It's like Steve's book would be how to run your first 5K, dot, 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 in under 14 minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not surprisingly... The feedback that I got from uh, both agents and publishers was, well, this is a little much. 
you know, we need something that applies, you know, we'll sell to the masses. And I remember at the time it was like the barefoot running craze, the minimalist craze. So they were like, you know, we'd really love it if you wrote a book on like the science of minimalist running and how to apply that to your life or something like that. And I was very hard headed at that point. And I was like, nope, I want a book like to to the the high level performance athlete, high level meaning not how fast you were running, but trying to maximize your performance. So that was in the back of my mind. And then what happened is, for those who don't know my story, quick story as I became a whistleblower, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point I realized blowing the whistle might put my livelihood and job in jeopardy. So I wanted to make sure that I had a stable foundation of uh, financial resources to be secure. So what I ended up doing was cranking out the second half of the book. Uh, If you've read The Science of Running, the first half is entirely science and physiology and biomechanics of how we run. The second half is a very in-depth how to apply that from a coaching standpoint. I wrote the second half of that and decided to self-publish it, send it out into the world, not having any idea really on what I was doing. But lo and behold, it did really well for a self-published book, opened up some opportunities, gave me that financial security. And that was really the beginning of my writing career and understanding that, wow, this is something that you can actually make make a little bit of money at and um, fast forward to when we had that conversation, Brad, is when I was starting to think about, okay, what's next? I don't want to go down this only hardcore running book world kind of ideals. Uh, what what can I do next? And that's when we uh, formed our kind of partnership. All right. So quick clarifying question, because I didn't know this. When you wrote The Science of Running and like hit self-publish on it or uploaded it to Amazon, did you have a big platform at that time? Or did the platform come from the book? Like how many people were reading your blog? Because hearing this, like any old dude could be like, oh shit, like I know a lot about a topic. I'm going to self-publish. And like, but but that might work. I don't know because I've never done that. Did Did you already have a platform? I had a little bit of a platform because my blog was doing well. Um it was doing well, but I would say the book outsold the platform. I mean, compared to now, it was nothing, not much of a platform at all. But it was enough where I had a foundation where I felt pretty, you know, I, I, I felt pretty good that it would sell, you know, a couple thousand copies. It ended up doing much better than that. But I kind of did the math based on selling, you know, a, a handful. So what was like, I want to get really real for listeners here. What was your platform at the time? And by platform, I mean, um, for those that aren't in publishing, like we use the word platform to talk about people who you think might buy your book. So it's, let's say you're going to combine all your social media followers, the regular readers of your website, your email lists, um, but we're talking regular readers. So it's not just like, these are every single contact. But if you if you could size it, what would you say? Are we talking 1,000, 5,000, 20? Yeah. So my social media platform, it's hard to under, uh, remember back then, but Twitter was in the beginning stages. So it was probably, uh, you know, in the single thousands, right? Two to 5,000 is my guess. Um, I didn't have an email list. Back then you had like RSS subscribers to blogs. And I think that was in the like 
two to you know four thousand range um of what I'd call my regular diehard subscribers. So there was enough of a platform, but it wasn't it wasn't a huge platform. Yeah, and there's probably some overlap in your RSS subscribers and the people that follow you on social media. So maybe you're thinking like, all right, I've got like four to five thousand people that regularly read my stuff and it'd be great to sell books to half of them. So we're talking like 2,500 and that book sold what, like 15,000 copies in the first year. Yep. Yep. About 15,000 that first year. So what do you attribute that to? Um, honestly, I mean, there were, you know, it was kind of surprising. Clearly it wasn't Alberto Salazar tweeting about it. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of surprising because again, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, uh, I think the reality of it is I filled a niche in the running world that simply wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think what, you know, if I'm looking back and probably, you know, through bias lens, but there was no book or resource at that time that went like, when I'm talking in depth, I'm talking like super in depth. Yeah, you readers know? beware. It's a phenomenal book if you want to get a PhD in the science of running. Right. But I think that people, Which apparently 15,000 people wanted to get a PhD in the science of running. But I think that's what it is, is people under, underestimate the the strength of niches. And when you're talking about people looking to like really maximize their performance, like runners care a lot and coaches care a lot about what they're doing. So like... There's there's a strong audience for it, and I would guess no different than if you know some uh, football guru put put out a book on you know the breaking down we'll call it the science of of quarterback play and designing plays. Like yeah, for the masses that would be nothing, but you know if you compare all the high school coaches trying to succeed and all that stuff, you'd have a decent audience there if it found it. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point to, to make that if you are not big time and you don't have a huge platform, but you write something very narrow, you have a shot to do well. Where you get into trouble is if you think like, oh, I'm this really good coach or I'm this uh, expert communicator, but I'm going to write this broad book on like management or on leadership. Those books generally don't do very well because in order to write a broad book on leadership and sell a bunch of copies, you kind of need to be like Adam Grant or Simon Sinek. Um, and, and I think that that's a good point. So, okay. So then self-publishing, you, you sold your book for what? 20 to $25 on Amazon? Yep. Okay. And what was the cost per book? Like based on the cut, the amp. So like Amazon takes like 50%. Presumably you paid a designer to design your cover. Hopefully you didn't pay him too much. <laughs> yeah, I actually paid a, uh, he was Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon. Or I, I threw him some money. Um, this was off a shoestring budget to get this done, as you can obviously tell. But um, yeah, I paid a designer a couple hundred dollars. And really that was, yeah, that was, you know, the only big, did you get an editor or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I just paid one editor to just read through it. Um, and again, I had no idea what I was doing. I mainly did the formatting and stuff myself by looking around and reading articles and all that stuff. Same with the marketing. I just threw stuff at the wall and saw what stuck. Um, 
So Amazon and, takes what? 50% of a self-published book? I've never self-published. So I don't know. Yeah. So it depends on the pages and the size and the cost. So they have a formula, but it comes out to hardcovers. It comes out to about, about 50%. Uh, ebooks, it's a little less because Amazon has this thing that incentivizes you to, uh, you essentially right. get, if you price it under $10, you get a higher cut versus if you price it at- Yeah, because they want to sell ebooks because it doesn't cost them anything to print it. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So about 50%. So $10 a book. So you're making like around $10 a book. So you made like hundred dollars to $150,000 from that book right off the bat. Yeah. That first year I was in the six figures. Yeah. Wow. So there you go, man. You get all those secrets. Here's how to write a six figure book overnight, but it's not <laughs> overnight. It's a lot of time and in a lot of luck. Um, okay. Neat. So then that's, that's Steve's journey up to the point where I'm writing for outside and I am kind of pursuing the, um, I'm at the very beginning of the elitist writing path, meaning like I'm writing for a, a high prestige publication and Steve is writing for these niche running publications and then building this like huge underground platform all around the science of running. Um, we meet and I tell Steve that, hey, even though I write for outside, which in the health and fitness space is as broad as you're going to get. I want to write a book that's broader, a book that's not just for athletes. And Steve tells me, oh man, like I love running, don't get me wrong, but I'd be kind of bored if all I did was write these like in-depth running books. So we basically got together and decided, well, what if we take principles that are seen in sport and examine how they work outside of sport in other fields? And what if we take principles that are popular in other fields and examine how they work in sport? And that became the idea for Peak Performance, um, which was our first book that we did together through a major publisher. So how on earth did that happen? Well, I can tell you how. That's the point of this podcast. <laughs> um, so I had interviewed for an outside story, a wonderful um, professor, psychologist, and just wonderful all-around woman, Kelly McGonigal, and she's at Stanford. And she had written a super popular book at the time called The Willpower Instinct. And she had also written another book that just came out called The Upside of Stress. And I remember in my interview with Kelly, she told me, like, I love your column. I've read it regularly. You should write a book. And I said, I don't think I'm going to write a book. I'm working this full-time job. I'm just moonlighting in my column for outside. I'm still, you know, doing full-time leadership consulting development with the healthcare system. Um... I don't want to do this, but that's really kind of you, thanks. And that was about six months before Steve and I decided we wanted to write this book. So Steve's like, you know, here's my experience self-publishing it, but I think we should like try to find an agent. Um, why not? So I remembered somehow miraculously that Kelly told that to me and I emailed Kelly and I didn't expect Kelly to respond. And she responded in like a day. She's like, you know, here's how you write a query letter to an agent, but why don't I just introduce you to my agent? Because it sounds like you've got a good idea and I'll tell and, and, and he'll definitely listen if the intro comes from me. So Kelly introduced me to her agent, a guy named Ted, and it just so happens that Ted lived about two minutes walk from me in San Francisco. Or excuse me, that's where his office was, not where he lived. So within a day of deciding to go get an agent, I was walking to Ted's office like two days later. Steve at the time is in New Zealand for some big sports conference. And I'm like, Steve, I think I'm like actually going to meet with an agent. So 
Then I meet with Tad and I tell him about the idea for the book. And he loves it. And he's like, oh, this is a great book. You mean like there are principles that apply to everything in life? We can market this book to everyone? This is wonderful. And um, I'm like, yeah, like that's the truth. And I tell him about Steve. And Ted's like, well, why don't you just want to write it alone? It would be a lot harder if there are two of you. Um, it gets complicated. That normally doesn't work out well. And I said, well, you know, I, I really like this Steve guy. I trust him. Um, and, you know, he, he's been thinking about this idea. It's not like either of us owned it. If, if listeners aren't familiar with the story's in-peak performance, but I basically did think I was going to write the book alone. I sent Steve a bunch of notes I had about the book. By this time, we had become good, you know, pen pal friends. And then Steve responded very quickly saying, oh my gosh, there's tons of overlapping thoughts. Here are my 150 pages of notes to prove it. And then we're like, well, let's just write this together. It'll be more fun. Um, so I told that story to Ted and Ted's like, yeah, well, it's still like really hard. Like, tell me about your platform. And I'm like, well, my platform is zero. I have 121 Twitter followers. I've got four, four cousins, but two of whom I don't really talk to, but I've got a bunch of second and third cousins. And Ted's like, well, tell me about Steve's platform. And I'm like, well, he's got like at the time, 15, 20,000 followers on Twitter. He's got the self-published book. Ted's like, you know, I actually think it'd be a great idea if you guys write this book together. Or actually, can I just talk to Steve? Why don't you just give me Steve's number? Um, so at that point, we got our first look into something that is very true in big time publishing, which is agents want to see two things. They want to see an idea that is marketable to a wide readership, and they want to see enough of a platform where they know that the worst case scenario is you'll still sell about 10,000 books. So... I had that conversation with Ted. I'm like, well, Ted, you basically just tried to get me to write it alone. So why on earth would I just have you call Steve so you could try to get him to write it alone? Like, we're going to do this together. So I call Steve. I tell Steve everything, um, which I think is is to both our credits, why our relationship is so great. Because in those early days, there were some situations which could have been awkward. And we were just totally honest with each other um, in, in all these situations. And we signed with Ted. And... Um, Ted had us put together what's called a proposal for a book. And a proposal is something that you send off to publishing houses. So in fiction, you write the entire book and you sell it. In nonfiction, you're basically selling the idea. So think of it as like a pretty detailed outline of the book. But, and this is a big but, you also need to have an entire business plan for the book. So a proposal that goes to a publishing house might be 70 pages in Word and only 35 of those pages are like the book outline or sample chapter. The other 35 is how you're going to market the book, where you're going to get publicity from, who are your connections that you think will help you promote the book, and on and on and on. So there's like a big upfront section on publicity and marketing, and then you're doing what are called um, chapter summaries. So it's a page or two for each chapter saying, here's the main points we're going to make, here's the science we're going to cover, here are the people that we're going to interview. So we put together a draft of the proposal. Like any good agent, Ted told us that the proposal sucked and he made us do like four more drafts. And eventually the proposal got really good. So at that point, Ted does his thing, which is write a fancy agent cover letter and send the proposal to a bunch of editors at big New York City publishing houses. I think he sent it off to about 25 to 30 and um, the no's come in and they come in fast. No, no, no. And um, 
then we get a, a, a glimmer of hope. An editor, I think it was Harp, was it Harper or Harper One, Harper Collins, something in the Harper family, um, loved the proposal. And she wanted to talk to us. And we had a great phone call, me, Steve, and Ted, and, and this editor. And Ted's like, that phone call was great. You guys clearly know your stuff inside and out. Um, I think that went really well. And then the next day, we get an email from Ted saying, hey, have either of you guys been on national television, like any of the morning shows? And we're like, well, Steve was once on a segment on the BBC about doping in sport. Um, and we've like, we could take a video of ourselves talking right now. Um, so that was it. So Harper, one editor said, I love the idea, but the feedback that we got was we just don't have the quote unquote platform. We don't have the media experience to do this. Um, so that turned into a no. Um, I think we were 0 for 26 when we got a call from Ted saying, I've got an offer. It's from this small publisher called Rodale and they want to pay you $50,000 to write the book. And we were stoked because to us, it's like, holy crap, someone wants to pay us $50,000 in advance and like, they're going to edit it and it's going to be pro. And Ted, like any good agent, he's like, $50,000 is nothing. Like, I'm going to make him double it. So Ted works his magic and um, we get $75,000 for that first book, which was peak performance. And um, geez, let's see. So... At that point, we sign a contract saying that we're going to write this book. They buy the proposal. We meet with our editor, a guy named Mark that was great. Go ahead, Steve. You're going to interject here. Yeah, I'm just going to interject here because I think it's important to understand how this uh, this stuff works. Is Rodale was mainly <laughs> um, in the running world, yeah. right? They had they were the publisher of Runner's World. Um, men's health, so, a bunch of like health and fitness magazines yeah. too. Health and health and fitness, which is, which is, you know, again, when we set out to the, write this book, it was broad and expanding on those things, but really to, you know, get things going and what got them interested was the fact that we had a platform and had like experience in this running slash sports world. And then we're hoping to expand upon it. So even here, when we're selling our book to a you know mass publisher, big time publisher, whatever you want to call it, is we're still using our niche, our area where we have a built-in following, not a huge one at this point, but at least some sort of following to get us over that hump. And I think that's worth driving home because... It's such an important thing in the in the book publishing world. And often we think of the idea as being the most important thing. And don't get me wrong, you need the idea. But equally important is, you know, convincing someone that like you're going to be able to move at least, you know, we'll say 10,000 copies or whatever that number is so that you essentially have a high floor so that they're not going to spend a bunch of money on you and then, you know, have it totally completely flop. Yeah. And the one, the only thing I'd add there is I think it also, the model differs by agents. So we'll get into this later on, but our first agent, Ted, and we're so fortunate. We, we worked with Ted on two books. Ted is wonderful. You guys are going to hear more about him in our second book. And for our next books, we're working with the different agents. And we'll get to why that's the case too. 
So in, in neither of these models, or there's millions of models, none are right or wrong, we're just different. So Ted's model was very much built on platform. So Ted wanted you to be quote unquote famous on an idea and then go write the book. So for Ted, it makes sense that he was able to talk Rodale into giving us money for this book because he probably, we're not privy to those calls, but he probably told them like, look, Steve's got this self-published book. Brad writes for like the prestige health and fitness magazine. You know, you combine their followings, this, that, and the other. You guys are going to sell at least X amount of books because these guys are an authority in this space. Whereas other agents, like our current agent, they're more idea focused. So you can't just be no one and have no platform and write a book. But if you have a really strong idea, even if it's outside of your wheelhouse, they feel confident that they can sell that idea. And my hunch is because that's how these kinds of things always are. Sometimes it works and sometimes it fails in all directions. But at the time, we're working with Ted. He's very platform driven as an agent. Um, So we end up with this publisher that, like Steve said, has a lot of overlap with the running health and fitness space. Um, And we end up getting the money that I said, 75K for the book. And it's going to be what's called like a B or C list book which as you can imagine is not like the finest book in the rotation, but it's not an F book. So every year publishers have A-list books, B-list books. God, I don't know. Maybe they go to Z-list. I, they publish a lot of books, but the A-list books are the ones that they're going to like pay to have, you know, placed in airports and at Barnes and Nobles in the middle of the shelf and pay Amazon dollars for and all this good stuff. And we were like a B to C-list book. And we also know that because the time that the book publishes, there's all kinds of factors that go into that. So we write a book called Peak Performance that is so much bigger than running. And they design a cover for the book. And we're basically like getting ready to go on publishing this book. And then we get a call from Ted. And he's like, I have news. It's good news, but it's going to change things. Do you remember the one that happened, Steve? And we're like, okay, what's going on? And Steve's like, well, the head of Rodale Publishing read your book And she absolutely loves it. And she says that this is going to be an A-list book, but it needs a new cover. It needs a new design scheme. It needs like new fonts because like this book is going to be Rodale's like A-list big time book. And I distinctly remember getting on the call with this publisher and man, Ted, love him to death for an agent. He's like, I told you the whole time this should have been an A-list book. I told you these guys are serious. Um, So he does his agent thing. I think it delayed the publication only by like a few months, but basically they completely redid the cover of the packaging of our book. They gave us like additional editing um, and it made the book better for sure. Like our old cover was not nearly as good um, and peak performance then became like one of Rodale's like prime books of the year. And it came out uh, in the middle of the summer and we did our thing, which is, you know, Tweet about the book, blog about the book. Oh, another thing in the in this path that I'm forgetting that's really important for, for listeners is, so there's a topic in, I don't even remember, it's either in Peak Performance or The Passion Paradox, and one of our books called um, A Premortem, which basically says that for any big project, whether that project is running a marathon or launching a book or starting a business or having a kid, you should go through this process where you imagine that a year has passed and everything went to crap, like a postmortem, and then you say, well, what went wrong? So when Steve and I got our book deal, we said, well, easy, we're going to sell our book through Twitter. Like combined, we've got at least 30,000 followers. Um, But we wanted to, to follow our own advice. So we did this 
pre-mortem and we pretended that we launched the book and no one bought it and it was a terrible failure. And we asked ourselves, well, what went wrong? And the answer that we came up with is, well, Twitter was down the week that we launched the book. So we couldn't reach anyone to buy our book. And as a result of that, we started this newsletter. Um, so yes, we had been thinking about a newsletter and we wanted to write it, but I hate to say this guys, the truth is, and it's no longer the case at all, that the newsletter, the, the, at the time it wasn't the growth EQ, it was the peak performance newsletter was simply started because we wanted to have a backup plan in the event that Twitter crashed the week that we wrote our book. So we built the newsletter for a year. We built that list up to, I don't know, maybe 5,000 at the time, 6,000, nothing major, but not too small. So when the book comes out, we're selling it hard through the newsletter, hard through Twitter. We're doing excerpts in magazines. We're just pushing everywhere we can. And we had this expectation that that book was going to sell like 5,000 copies the first week. And it sold nowhere close to that. It probably sold, um, I think the number was like 50, I'd have to look back, like 1,500 copies. And that might be ebook and hardcover combined. So everyone was trying their best to be really excited but no one was really excited. Um, so that book just didn't get off to such a good start. Um, like there was talk about bestseller lists that probably shouldn't have been the case because it, it clearly that wasn't going to happen. And we're sitting there, you know, kind of lamenting after getting off this high because you, you feel like when you're pushing, you feel like, oh, we're crushing it. If you'd like to keep listening, you'll need to become a member at www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. This podcast does not do sponsorship. We are 100% listener supported. In addition to this podcast, if you subscribe to our Patreon account, you'll get other exclusive content like our quarterly mastermind group, a monthly roundup, Sign copies of our forthcoming books, guides to resilience and other topics, and author discussions with some of your favorite authors like Cal Newport, Maria Konnikova, and others. So head over to www.patreon.com slash the growth equation, become a member, listen to this podcast, and so much more.